0: No, let me do it. I can do that myself. And we've all heard little children. Hopefully you're not still saying that. But we've heard little children utter those phrases. Maybe it's something as simple as tying their shoes or doing some other task. Now obviously, part of the design for us as parents is to make them independent to where they can do these things for themselves. But that simple little statement is something that really incorporates the basic idea that's in the heart of every one of us. I can do it myself. I think, regardless of the generation that's represented here, we're all familiar with a well known singer. Back in the 1900s, Frank Sinatra. And one of his well known songs was called My Way. And now the end is near. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. But more, much more than this, I did it my way. Now the one thing I have to acknowledge in the lyrics of Frank Sinatra's song, is at least he's not blaming someone else for what he did or the mistakes he made. Because he goes on in that song to talk about regrets and mistakes. But what gave him the greatest comfort was I did it my way. And if we're being honest with ourselves, somewhere deep inside, we each one think my way is the best way. Part of the struggle that we have when it comes to someone telling us, you know, we really ought to live our lives God's way rather than my way, is because somehow we have gained the misconception that doing things God's way is a joyless form of existence. We often hear people talk about all the sacrifices that they've made for Christ. And we can acknowledge and appreciate all of those sacrifices. So often we look at Christian people And their faces are anything but radiant. They have the doldrums. They moan and they groan. And somehow we've gotten the misconception that if you're miserable, you are more spiritual. And so because of that, we are very reluctant to think about doing things God's way instead of my way. Now we know there's a vast difference. God said, my thoughts are not as your thoughts, and my ways are not as your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So high, or much higher, are my ways than your ways. But when we reach that final curtain, what would be more important for us is to say, by God's grace, I sought to do it His way, than to be able to say, regardless of what happened in my life, much more, much more than this, is I did it my way. You know why? Because there's a way that seems right to man. It's the way you naturally think is best. But the end is death. I'd like to talk today about what Solomon says is The importance of not doing it your way, but living life God's way. And we find that repeated throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and in particular, the heart of what we're looking at in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 7 through 10. 7 through 9. Remember, the book of Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. And it's giving the answer to the question, where is it you find fulfillment? Where is it you find satisfaction? Where is it you find meaning and purpose in life? And the real issue is, is it by doing it your way, or by doing it God's way? And in chapters 1 through 6, Solomon brings out his theme to say, if you're living for the things of this world, you're going to be left short. You might have passing joy and pleasures, but in the end, it'll leave you empty. And then in chapters 7 through 12, he makes deductions from that theme. And basically he says, the wise way to live life, is to have a God-centered focus. Because a God-centered focus is only how an individual will have meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life. Now, as Solomon says to us in verses 7 and following in chapter 9, go then, eat your bread in happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white at all times, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with a woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Now in this immediate context, Solomon has looked at things that every one of us have to recognize, we have to comprehend in our life experience. And there's three basic points he's made in verses 1 through uh, 6 in this section before us. The first point is, you've got no guarantee of what's going to happen to you next. <clears throat> Life is uncertain. Now Solomon isn't saying that because somehow dice is being rolled and you don't, don't know what's going to take place. He's indicated that it's all under the providential hand of God. He has said that back in chapter 3, where God has made everything appropriate for its time. and What's included? Every aspect of life. A time to be born and a time to die and everything else in between. God is the one who is at work. And what Solomon wants us to understand is, you and I do not live in this world in a cause-effect existence as if somehow because you do something, God is obligated to do something for you. There's no guarantees. And Solomon says it doesn't matter whether you're a righteous man or an unrighteous man, whether you're an individual walking with God or you're an individual that says there is no God. No individual knows what will be the next event in his life. The only thing we have for certain is the here and now, the, the very present, Form of our existence. The second thing he said is when you look at living your life, you have to recognize you have to face that last enemy, death. Death is certain for every one of us, there's no one that's exempt. And he again talks about all different types of individuals, all have to face death. Death is a reality for us all. And the third thing Solomon understood is this world is full of evil and wickedness. And Solomon understood why it's there better than people in our day understand why it's there. We're sure that the reason why there's evil and wickedness is people are deprived of certain things. It has to do with our culture. It has to do with our environment. It has to do with something outside of themselves. You know what Solomon said in this section is the reason? It's because the heart of man is full of evil. It's full of sin. And so we see the reality if we just turn on the news of the fact that evil things are happening and usually when people are being interviewed, you know what they say? I don't understand how he could have done such a thing or how she could have been so cruel. They were such good neighbors, such good people. Dear friend, including you, there is none good, no not one. The beauty of the Scripture, even though we may not enjoy it, is it looks at reality square in the face. And for many of us, at times it slaps us because it tells us things we don't want to understand. And the reality is of what Solomon recognized is you and I have no guarantee except where we are right now. The ultimate goal for us in this temporal life is death. And in the midst of it, there's going to be evil and uh, wickedness taking place. He even affirmed back in chapter 7, there's not a righteous man on the earth that never sins. Isn't that true as a child of God? What are you still struggling with? The fact that I've had a thought that I am sure wish I never had. I said something for which I'm sorry. I acted in such a way that dishonored the Lord. Not any one of us have yet obtained nor are perfect. You and I live in a world that is under the curse And there's manifestations of it, but thanks be to God, his sovereign control is over all things so that he curbs the expressions of evil as he accomplishes his purpose. And you know what he does for his children in the midst of all of that? See, we've quoted it so many times going through here. It's Paul's great statement in Romans. You know what we know? God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Doesn't mean you don't face difficulties. It doesn't mean you don't have sorrows. It doesn't mean you don't have trials in life that are different from the rest of the people in the world because there's no trial that overtakes you that's not common to man. It doesn't mean you're exempt from sickness, illness, difficulties, and pressures. But it's God bringing in your life what will accomplish His purpose for you to make you more dependent on Him and conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. He works all things together for good. And Solomon says, in spite of these negatives, man has a longing. You know what that longing is? To live in this world. The confession Solomon made was, being alive is better than being dead. And the reality is, people do things when they go through difficulties to lengthen their life, to try to get better. It's that drive within us. And Solomon emphasizes it by saying, well, you know, after all, a live dog is better than a dead lion. Why is it? Because the dog is still part of the things going on in this world where the lion is not. You enjoy getting up and hearing a loved one or a friend or someone's voice on the phone. You like laughing with others. You like doing things with relatives. Once you die, you can't participate in that again. You have the blessing of being involved in what's going on today. And so Solomon makes the conclusion In light of the reality that even though we're under the curse and there are bad things that happen to good people, that man is plotting evil things and is unkind and cruel to other human beings, there is a benefit and a blessing to be associated with our loved ones, our brothers in Christ, etc. So, what's the perspective that we need to have? Notice in verse 7 he says, go, and the translators added the word then. It's as if they recognized that Solomon was saying, in light of the reality of what's transpiring around you, here's the appropriate way for you to live today. Go then. It's the appropriate way to live life. In other words, what he's saying in verses 7 through 9 is living Life, God's way. I want to emphasize again, because so many individuals mistakenly think that the book of Ecclesiastes is a perspective on how to live life as if God isn't part of it. And what Solomon keeps emphasizing repeatedly in this book is that God is the part of everyone's life whether they acknowledge it or not. And if someone is living life God's way, that's the individual who really has fulfillment and purpose and meaning and joy in life. And that joy and meaning isn't associated only with things going well. Even when things don't go well, you know what the child of God can say? When sorrows like sea billows roll, roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say what? It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though other things come into my life, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed His own blood for my soul. It's well. What I want you to understand is that what is being taught to us or taught to us by Solomon in Ecclesiastes is not a misguided perspective of an individual living under the sun who has no spirituality. <coughs> Solomon will make it very clear that what's really most important is that you are an individual who fears God. Isn't that what he even says in verse 7? Why is it the individual can eat his bread in happiness and drink his wine with a cheerful heart? Look at his reason for it. For God has already approved your works. If you are an individual that's acceptable to God, you're an individual that should have a joy unspeakable because of what it is to be a child of God. As we look at this, what well, we need to recognize that Solomon has mentioned this theme so many times before. And as I emphasized the last time, when Solomon looked at this tr- uh, idea... He concluded by saying that the preacher sought out delightful words and to write the words of truth correctly. And the words of the wise men, they're like well driven nails, and they're given by one shepherd. So, Ecclesiastes is infallible, inerrant truth just as much as you can say for any other book of the Bible. And it is a book of wisdom to teach us what is the appropriate way for us to live life. Listen to his refrain. Quickly go with me through the things that he has repeated in this book. Turn with me back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24, there is nothing better for a man. In other words, This is the way it really is. I hope you understand that by and large, non-Christian philosophers live in a make-believe world. The humanists who say there is no invisible world live in a make-believe world. Only the Christian has the outlook on life that puts all the pieces together. And so he says, here is the best way for you to live. There's nothing better for an individual than to what? What does he say? To eat, to drink, tell himself his labor is good because I've seen what? Well, your situation is from the hand of whom? God. Because who else? Who could eat? And who could have enjoyment without Him? Or if you go over to Chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. I mean, that's got to be an unbiblical way of looking at things, right? Who would ever think that God wants you to be an individual that goes about doing good? How ludicrous it is to dismiss the wisdom that we have in this book. Here's the best way to do it, he says. Rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, to every man who eats and drinks, he's good in all of his labor. It's the gift of God. It's the gift of God. Look over in chapter 3, verse 22. And I have seen that that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities. For this is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? In other words, you don't have any way of knowing what the future holds. Chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat and to drink and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun, doing the few years of his life which God has given to him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, to every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, He has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive His reward and rejoice in His labor. This is the gift of God. Are you getting the point? You can't change yesterday. It's history. You don't have a clue as to what tomorrow is. It's a mystery. But today is God's gift. How are you living it? When that final curtain comes, I can say this, I did it my way. Are you the individual that recognizes God's way is not a joyless way? And in fact, God's way is the only way of fulfillment. And when that final curtain comes, I can say by the grace of God, I sought to live my life God's way. And what commends God to a watching world Is the fact that God's people have a peace and a joy that they don't receive from this world, that undergirds and strengthens them in all the circumstances in life. In fact, is this just an Old Testament truth? What does the Apostle Paul say to us through the letter he wrote to the Philippians? Do everything without murmuring and complaining. Because I'll tell you what characterizes the non-believer and even the religious person. Nothing's ever right. It's too hot, too cold, too dry, too wet. And then that goes into every other aspect of life as well. Do everything without murmuring and complaining that you may prove, that you may demonstrate that you are the children of God without reproach. You know what commends Christ? Having a joyful outlook on life that recognizes my God will never leave me. He will never abandon me. And what I have is the provision that He has given to me. And therefore I can eat my bread in happiness. I can drink my wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved my works. I'm not living on a performance scale to trying to earn merit with God. Do you understand how liberating that is? Do you know what a blessing it is to stand before God by grace? I listen to some of the modern Christian hymns, uh, songs, and they talk about how God must really be disappointed with me. Dear friend, God is not disappointed in you. He knows what you are. We're sinners saved by grace. We are never wonderful saints with whom God is justly proud, but always as foolish and erring children with whom He is long suffering and patient. And what you have today, regardless of how much or how little, is His gift to you. Today is God's gift. Enjoy it. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said individuals who fabricate a religion of works say we ought to abstain from certain things and we ought to be sure we don't eat certain foods. He says, oh, but all of them have been given by God to be gratefully received by those who know the truth. When Paul wrote to the Philippians... Guess how he told them you're to live your Christian life. Rejoice in the Lord. Maybe on Sunday. Maybe when things are going well. What did he say? Rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you missed it, again I say, rejoice. over in chapter 8. Verse 15, Solomon said, So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. Or in our verse before us, Go then, eat your bread and happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white at all times and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And when Solomon wants to speak to the next generation... You know what he tells them to do? Besides saying, remember your Creator in the days of your youth, he gives them three R's to remember. And it's not reading, writing, arithmetic. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Second, he says, remove vexation from your heart. Don't get all tied up in knots over the things that you see that you can't change and control. And the other thing he says, Rejoice, young man, in your childhood and in your youthful days. God's people are to be a people characterized by joy. And do you know why that is? Because in God's presence is the fullness of joy forever. And the nearer you draw to God, the more you will experience His joy this side of glory. How did Jesus say it? In the world, you're going to have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer. Why? I've overcome the world. You know what he also said? I'm going to leave you my peace. Not like the world gets peace. It's a peace the world can't take away. He says, I don't even need to ask the Father to take care of you or answer your prayers. You just go ahead and pray that your joy may be full. said, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what burdens we needlessly bear. You know why? All because we do not take or carry everything to God in prayer. God's design for his children is to sit in the lap of their heavenly father and to know that he'll take care of them. God's design is to teach us more of His all-capable sufficiency. God's design is for us to grow, to love Him more each day, regardless of the task that He gives us to do, regardless of the ministry that we might be in, regardless of how He uses us in the lives of others. You understand that the real bottom line of what's involved in that circumstance is that we are growing closer to God and enjoying Him. God doesn't need you or me in accomplishing His purpose, but He's given us the privilege of being part of the great work that He's doing. And how we fail to commend Him when we do it with long faces and drudgery. When the priests in the nation of Israel got to that point where they looked at their ministry instead of seeing it as a God-given blessing, they said, oh, how wearisome it is. Here we are got to slaughter another lamb. Throw the carcass up on the altar. You know what God said to them? Shut the door. I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need your worship. Because my name is a great name and my glory will permeate the earth. What delights the heart of God is individuals who joyfully and cheerfully and willingly give of themselves to Him. When you give, be it financially or in an activity, do you know what Paul said to us is the way in which we're to do it? Not under compulsion. Not by constraint. As if it's what you've got to do today. Because God loves what? A cheerful giver. That Greek word would be better translated into English. God loves a hilarious giver. Somebody that's out of their mind with laughter. What a great privilege I have to serve the King of the Lord. How did, Paul say, uh, how did Solomon say we're to live our lives? With a focus on God. Finding our fulfillment in Him. And enjoying the blessings that He gives To live your life any other way each and every day is to rob Him of the glory that He deserves. Because what do you have that you have not received? And whether God keeps something from you or pours out an abundance on you, it's all His providential design to do what is for your best good. And wherever you may find yourself, there is the occasion to praise and glorify Him. Here's the Apostle Paul. Down in the dungeon in Philippi. You know what they did that night? They sang praises to God. Because Paul said, I've learned whatever circumstance I'm in, doesn't matter whether God's kept something from me or God's given me abundance that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When he wrote to Timothy, he said, you want to know something that's of great value for the people of God? Not only godliness, being more and more like God, but godliness with contentment. We live in a culture that always is telling us you need something more to be happy. And because of that, sometimes when we bless the food before a meal or we remember God in prayer, it's nothing more than just repetition of a ritualistic prayer instead of an expression of the heart that says, Lord, thank you. thinking of how this is expressed in some of our Christian hymns. If you've been following the outline, you'll notice we didn't go very far. We got off on a tangent. But listen to some of these. We've already mentioned about it is well with my soul. A hymn written out of adversity. I think one of, if I use more of a modern vernacular, upbeat Christian hymn composers was a woman struck with blindness. Fanny Crosby. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste. Of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit. Washed in His blood. Oh, this is my story. This is my song, says Fanny. What is her story? What is her song? Praising my Savior all the day long. sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Elton Roth said, I have a song that Jesus gave to me. It was sent from heaven above. There never was a sweeter melody tis a melody of love. In my heart there rings a melody. It's the recognition that God infuses joy into the experience of His people. It begins with the fact that the burden of sin has been removed. It continues with the fact that God is the one who is always with me, never will abandon me. It is the recognition That I'm not trying to earn favor with Him. I stand before Him in grace. I don't have to try to earn His love. To prove His love. His love initiates it. And I respond back in love to Him. Oh, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. Fanny said, I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guards my footsteps and gives me songs in the night. Enjoying God's provision today is not unspiritual, In fact, it is a failure to give him his due. He has given us all things richly to enjoy. Doesn't mean we become worldly minded. It doesn't mean that we've lost track of the fact that we still deal with issues of sin. And we still see evil around us and we don't burden for those who are outside of Christ. All that's part of the equation. But God's people are characterized by an inexplainable joy. And that joy is sourced in Jesus Christ himself. So the great hymn uh, hymn says, day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. I'm trusting in my Father's wise bestowment. I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Now, if what I'm saying to you are just the words of someone else, or seem to be contrary to your understanding, let me encourage you to go to the scriptures. Don't just take it because I'm presenting it. This is not just a truth to be found in Ecclesiastes. It permeates all of God's word. That the redeemed of the Lord have everlasting joy on their heads. They're the ones who can live today with a sense of well-being because Christ has regarded their helpless estate. And they are the only ones who are ready to meet the world to come. So for every one of us, sadly, some of you will join Frank Sinatra. And you'll say, when that final curtain comes, this is the one thing that matters most and this is what I can say. I did it my way. And Christ will say you're without excuse because we all have to stand before him. But for those who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, don't let the evil one and the burdens of this world weigh you down and rob you of the joy of your salvation, of the blessing that it is to be a child of God and to enjoy him and grow in him each day. No, you know, there's over 10,000 reasons for you to bless the Lord. The sun has come up. It's a new day that's dawn. It's time to join the birds and sing God's song again. And the way to approach today and to be sure I'm glorifying Him is that whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, Let me be singing when the evening comes. Let's pray.